Good morning again. Uh, my name is Tawanti Peña and I'm a member of the Human Rights Commission. I'd like to welcome all of you to the 35th Annual Human Rights Awards Breakfast. Thank you all for joining us on this beautiful and cold morning. Uh, author Jack Canfield is quoted as saying, one individual can begin a movement that turns the tide of history. Martin Luther King is in the civil rights movement, Mohandas Gandhi in India, Nelson Mandela in South Africa are examples of people standing up with courage and nonviolence to bring about needed changes. We are here today to highlight the great human rights work and movements that are occurring in this community and to hear the inspiring words of our distinguished keynote speaker. Before introducing the keynote, I would like to share a brief history of the Human Rights Commission and what we do. The Human Rights Commission was established in August of 1963 by the Iowa City Council to serve as a resource to address inequities that were occurring in this community. Today, 55 years later, we continue to address inequalities and injustice, as well as provide community outreach on discrimination, bias, and human rights. Current commission members, please stand if you are able when I say your name. Is Chair Eliza Willis, Joe Coulter, who's back there getting breakfast, Adil Adams, who's also back there, Jonathan Munoz, Barbara Kotzko, Biju Maliabo, Jeff Falk, Kathy McGuinness, and myself. On behalf of the entire commission, I would like to acknowledge all attendees for your support uh, of this important event. I hope you enjoy the program. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, I'm Eliza Willis, the current chair of the Human Rights Commission. I'd like to introduce our keynote speaker, Professor Tammy Knighton. Uh, Professor Knighton is a mother, children's mental health advocate and associate professor of philosophy at Grinnell College, where we've been colleagues for many, many, many years. Um, she is the founder of the NAMI of Johnson County's Children's Coalition. She is also co-founder and president of Mothers on the Front Line, a nonprofit that uses storytelling for caregiver healing and children's mental health advocacy. For her advocacy on behalf of children's mental health, she received the Isabel Turner Award in 2016. Professor Knighton is currently a fellow at the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies at the University of Iowa and recipient of Grinnell College's innovation grant for a project called Digital Stories for Social Justice, the School to Prison Pipeline. What this list of accomplishments doesn't capture is how inspiring she has been in carrying out each of these roles. Please join me in welcoming Professor Tammy Knighton. for that very kind introduction. It's an honor to speak here today. Um, I want to congratulate all the award winners. Um, and I really want to just thank everyone in this room for your commitment and work towards social justice. 
Before I begin, I just want to give a shout out to two people in the room who are very important to me. Cole, my son, without whom I wouldn't be here. <laughs> I admire his strength, his courage, and his own advocacy. He's always helping, uh, helping advocate for others, which is amazing. And my best friend, Angela Riccio, who's here, she um, is not only my best friend since second grade, but she's co-founder of Mothers on the Frontline. And I want to thank her for all of the incredible work she's doing for that organization. <laughs> so this week is uh, the National Week of Action Against School Pushout. Uh, this is a campaign by Dignity in Schools. So it's a good time to talk about the school-to-prison pipeline. School push-out is a big part of that pipeline. And it refers to the policies and practices that result in pushing kids out of school into the juvenile justice system, or later the criminal justice system. We know that these policies disproportionately target students of color, students with disabilities, particularly children with mental illness, youth who identify as LGBTQ+, youth in the foster care system, and youth living in poverty, particularly homeless, the homeless. And it's the children in the intersections among these groups that are most at risk, made the most invisible, and the least advocated for. And that's something I want to talk to you about today, is how that results from something sometimes we advocates ourselves do and why we need to change that as well. Every year, over 1.2 US students drop out of high school. That's a student every 26 seconds, or 7,000 a day. And we know that school dropout greatly increases the likelihood of arrest. For example, 50% of students with serious mental illness in the US drop out of high school. Absorb that for a minute. You heard that right, half of the children in the US with serious mental illness don't graduate high school. And 73% of those students are arrested within five years. 75% of the kids in our juvenile justice system have mental illness. So what we've done is we've changed from state institutions for the mentally ill to state level incarceration of the mentally ill. Example of pipeline policies that have been shown to lead to push out and arrest that affect all of these groups I've discussed include zero tolerance policies. These policies include behavior, um, policies about behavior, but they also include zero tolerance policies about attendance, which particularly affect those living in poverty and those with mental illness. It includes punitive discipline, suspension, expulsion, seclusion, and restraint, having school resource officers in the school, and lack of resources in schools, including counselors, mental health training, and cultural competency training. So the pipeline is not only about the 48,000 US youth that are incarcerated currently, 95% of which have never committed a violent crime, and one-tenth of which are housed in adult facilities. It's not just about those 48,000, it's also about the 1.2 million high school students that drop out. So why do I want to talk to you about this? Because for me, this is a very personal issue. 
Five years ago, I became involved in children's mental health advocacy because after several years of trying to get my son the mental health care and the educational resources he needed, I kept coming up short. And as I talked to other parents, they were having the same experience. So we started working together to try to advocate on this issue. And I joined several state-level work groups and advisory councils on children's mental health. And I'm going to be honest with you. I want to say something inspiring, but I'm going to be honest with you. It's been a pretty traumatic experience. I was disheartened at how difficult it is in Iowa to get a real conversation going about how mental health relates to school push-out. It's really hard to get this conversation going. I'm very excited. You may notice we are talking about children's mental health. Have you noticed? I'm really excited about that. We're finally talking about that. But it's hard to get people to make this connection between mental illness and school push-out, and particularly how that relates to these other issues. For instance, we have um, the highest rising suicide rate is among African-American male youth and the suicide rate for African-American children ages 5 to 12 has recently doubled that of white children and is the highest particular growing demographic. We have to look at the intersections because there's a story to be told there about racial trauma that's affecting children's mental well-being. So again, why we need to look in the intersections. So I have to say I've been disheartened a little bit and I realize there are two things that are our barriers in this kind of work. Stigma, and what I'm going to refer to as stigma jumping. Stigma, I think we're all familiar with stigma, right? We have a lot of stigmas around mental illness. The first one is the general one, that mental illness is a character flaw, something that can be solved with behavior modification practices of rewards and punishments. That's just not true. Okay, you can't reward and punish psychosis away. It doesn't work. Okay. There's also an assumption that if a child is mentally ill, the parents did something wrong. This is a dangerous stigma, too, because, and it's a convenient stigma. Because if we only focus on saying what the families did wrong, we don't have to look at the institutional traumas, the systemic traumas that we are placing on our children. Think about what we're doing to a generation of children at the border right now and the long-term intergenerational trauma, that legacy that we're leaving, that's something we're all doing. And we have to talk about that. So stigmas can prevent us from looking at the many causes of mental illness in children, including these institutional and systemic traumas. For example, the traumas inflicted on children with autism in schools when their sensory symptoms are punished as behaviors rather than prevented by modifying lighting and other physical characteristics of the building. Okay, So that's just one example. So in my advocacy journey, two things have stood out. Stigma, which I've already talked about a little bit, and stigma jumping, which is what I want to leave you with. Because this is how all of us who are doing advocacy work can do something a little better. Okay. I define stigma jumping as avoiding association with potential allies in advocacy to avoid their stigma being attached to our cause, our organization, or our group. And unfortunately, the more I think about it, the more I see it in every sphere of advocacy. It's not unique to mental health. I first encountered it within the disability community. I was sort of shocked. We were working on Medicaid waivers. 
And as I started to say, let's coalition because we have, we're working on these same issues. I had some groups who were focusing on children with physical disabilities say, well, our kids don't have mental illness. No, thank you. Okay. And then I would think about what I'd hear in the mental health community sometimes. Well, my kid has anxiety and depression, but they have a high IQ. Well, what are you saying about the ID intellectual disabilities community? We say we're advocating for human rights, and yet we're scooting away from other people who we're afraid are going to bring us down. But stigma jumping brings us all down. Advocating together is what raises us all up, and that's what we need to start doing. Stigma jumping also exists between advocacy spheres. And as we started to work in the school to prison pipeline issues, this is something we're dealing with in Mothers in the Front Line. As we go out and give workshops and conferences, we find it's interesting to try to talk between advocacy groups, because as you see, this issue affects so many. The LGBTQ plus community, it affects racial and ethnic communities, it affects um, poverty issues. I mean, there's so many people that if we all go arm in arm into the state house and in the court and into the nation's capital and say we're not standing for this anymore you're going to stop pushing our kids out of school you're going to stop incarcerating them at these ridiculous rates and you're going to stop imprisoning our families who are left over to deal with what happens when you take away our loved ones and put them in prison we're not doing it anymore if we all do that together something will happen but that means we have to listen to each other's experiences and we have to stand with each other instead of try to jump over each other's stigma and the biases that society's placing on that group because we don't want those biases placed on our own. Right. So one thing we've encountered is this as well, as we're tr trying to bring groups together. And so what is the solution to this? It's quite simple. And this is what we're trying to do at Mothers on the Frontline. It's a very simple recipe I want to leave everyone with, what we can all do. And this follows for every single social justice movement happening right now, especially the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matters movement and so forth. One, listen to people with lived experience. Listen to what they have to tell you about what they are living. And the most important part, to believe them. Don't get defensive and start saying that couldn't have happened to you because that didn't happen to me. Believe them. And three, the crucial part for advocacy. We need to not only listen and believe, but we need to stand with them. We need to partner with them and ally where we have common causes, and we have so many common causes. We need to work together. We need to stop the stigma jumping. And we need to raise each other up. So please. I encourage all of you, let's walk arm in arm on all the myriad of issues that our different constituency groups share and do these fights together. It's the only way we're going to dismantle the school to prison pipeline. It's the only way we're going to get social justice in our nation. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Kathy McGinnis. Please help me in thanking Dr. Nyden for her words this morning and for the work she does advocating for children every day. <laughs> Dr. Nyden, I'm going to have you come back up and collect your award, please. You can come on back up and collect your award. <laughs> Thank you. 
Now it is my pleasure to present our awards to some very deserving honorees. Linda Severson, Individual in a Service Organization. The 2018 Linda Severson Award goes to Kevin Sanders of the Iowa City Chapter of the NAACP. Mr. Sanders' list of accomplishments is too long to enumerate here, so I will focus on two. First, he was the driving force behind reviving the Iowa City branch of the NAACP after it had been dormant for 36 years by enrolling 100 active members with paid dues, setting up a monthly meeting location, attending NAACP training, and submitting the national application, Mr. Sanders was instrumental in achieving the necessary criteria to be approved by the national NAACP. Second, he contacted Iowa City Police and the University of Iowa Police to introduce leaders of the NAACP Iowa City branch. That meeting resulted in continued meaningful discussions on police training, use of force, de-escalation, and racial profiling. When hate propaganda mail was being distributed, Mr. Sanders leveraged the relationships he had built with local law enforcement to spearhead a hate crime forum that included educating the community about hate crime laws and the protocols for reporting them. Mr. Sanders encourages groups in our community to work together, not against one another, to interact and dialogue. These and his many other contributions illustrate the spirit of service to the community for which the Linda Severson Award was created. Please give Mr. Sanders a warm round of applause. First of all, I would like to say thank you. I am truly humbled. This is, a, this is a great day for everyone. The honorees, I would like to say kudos and um, encourage you to continue to do the work that's needed to be done. I would like to thank the Iowa City Human Rights Commission for recognizing us. I really would like to thank the Iowa City Police Department because um, I believe at times they're under a lot of scrutiny. And this was one of the reasons I decided to reach out to Jody Madeley to discuss ways that we could collaborate. And so this is the model I would like to continue to show that we need to work together. And the Iowa City Police Department, University of Iowa Police Department, and the University Heights Police Department are all willing to collaborate with the NAACP to make changes. And this is what we need, but through a collaborative effort, we have to minimize the level of scrutiny that's going on in our community. We need to address the mental health side of things. We just need to work together. And I wanna thank everyone for this award. It's not about me. It's about the NAACP and everyone who supports Human rights. I'm going to take this award to the African American History Museum in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and donate it so young African Americans can have something to look up to and be inspired. Thank you. Award, Dr. Jack Stapleton. 
It has been over 20 years since Dr. Jack Stapleton started the first clinic in Iowa to treat HIV and AIDS, right here in Iowa City at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. It began with just 20 patients and has grown to over 2,000. The life expectancy of those who are living with HIV has increased dramatically in the intervening years due to advances in medications. Dr. Stapleton has conducted research studies to help with getting closer to a cure and has also built a team consisting of six case managers, one field benefits specialist, a dedicated program nurse, a behavioral health consultant, many support staff, and several providers. His program helps those living with HIV and AIDS with housing, food, insurance, social supports, transportation, and many other things in addition to medical care. There is also a satellite clinic in Waterloo. Although patients now have many options, some still travel from all over the world to continue seeing Dr. Stapleton and the Ryan White team of specialists. Rick Graff, who died of AIDS in 1995, would be proud to see Dr. Stapleton receive the award bearing his name. Please recognize Dr. Stapleton with your applause. Thank you very much. <clears throat> Excuse me. I would like to also thank the commission and uh, the folks who nominated me. It's actually been over 30 years, not 20. It's uh, 32 years ago I came to Iowa <clears throat> in part to set up an HIV clinic. And we officially opened uh, 30 years ago this year. And two very important people that, that uh, contributed to that were Chris Davis, who uh, was a nurse practitioner and Pat Herring, a social worker. <clears throat> and we really worked hard to make the patients the focus of our, <clears throat> of our work. And fortunately in 1998, so 20 years ago, we got our first funding through the Ryan White Care legislation to fund our clinic and we were able to expand and provide better services. And as a result, we have a Ryan White team now led by Tricia Kroll, <clears throat> um, a social worker who's been with us since 2000. And because we are a team, I'd like for the, the people who are here to stand, please, and also be recognized. <laughs> and, and my one-minute card is up, so. Um, the, um, I knew Rick Graff well, and um, had he survived two or three more years, he'd be alive today. The, <clears throat> the medical advances for HIV AIDS have just been phenomenal. See, when I came here, most we had about one patient a week die. And now, almost none of our patients die directly from HIV. They die of complications of, of other complications, cancer, et cetera. <clears throat> I, I will say that unfortunately, the stigma that's associated with HIV hasn't gone away. It's better, and it's certainly a, a much more accepted disease in many places, but it's still a problem. And <clears throat> thanks to our social workers and program uh, people in the program, they do tremendous work to help with that. There's a lot of mental health problems in our patients. And, and so it's, it really is a team effort and something we all need to keep working on. So thank you again.
our international award, Refugee and Immigrant Association. The Refugee and Immigrant Association, also known as the RIA, was founded in 2013 by a group of African refugees committed to helping other refugees and immigrants as they settle in eastern Iowa. Since its founding, RIA has advanced this vision on several fronts. First, RIA provides a welcoming hand to refugees and immigrants. Among other achievements, RIA provided at least 63 families consisting of 340 people with short-term housing, furniture, and household items. RIA volunteers logged nearly 10,000 miles transporting people to appointments. They serve as interpreters, helping newcomers fill out applications and forms related to employment and health care. RIA offers a class in English as a second language and collaborated with the Iowa City Community School District to initiate an after-school program, especially designed for refugee and immigrant children. Second, RIA has reached out to build bridges to other segments of the community, helping to generate mutual understanding, respect, and support. The organization sponsors the local observance of World Refugee Day, June 20th, and an annual Refugee and Immigrant Recognition Dinner. Third, RIA helps refugees and immigrants integrate into American society while also working to preserve cultural traditions. RIA leaders and other volunteers understand the needs, cultural values, aspirations, and challenges facing new arrivals. Here to accept the international award on behalf of RIA is its president, John Paul Mugamuzi. Please give Mr. Mugi, Mr. Mugamuzi a warm round of applause. Wow. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when we were told that we are gonna get this award, so the first thing we were thinking about those days that we spent the nights under trees, under rain, and the journey from our country to the United States. And when the keynote speaker came here and she talked about her son, in my mind, straight, I see the parents and wishing that they could be here, but we don't have, we didn't have the chance to be with them here because their life were taken away so early by group of people who decide to take their life away. And this is a very good time for us to be able to receive this award today and. I know that this could not happen if there is no hands of someone who is above. This is why we are going to say thanks to Lord God for his never-ending mercy, uh, grace, provision, and the second life, second chance of life that he has given to us. The second, we are so honored to be here this morning and grateful to receive this award from the Iowa City Human Rights Commission. The following we would like to recognize, as all we know that today is the United Nations Day, so we cannot keep quiet. So we like to recognize those many ways 
that the United Nations, especially the UNCHR, helps refugees around the world. Our thanks goes to Leslie Olson, James Olson, Nicole Vanderin and Sarah, and all those people who have helped this organization to get to the point where we are now. And finally, I would like to thank the mayor of Iowa City for inspiring the refugee and immigrant communities in Iowa City by attending all our events. And to end my speech, I would like to say thanks to refugees and immigrants in Iowa City for their contribution to make this organization continue to grow. And the last thing I'm going to ask all refugees who and immigrants who are here to stand up. And this is our turn to. Yeah, I'm going to ask my fellow refugees and immigrants who are here to stand up and to clap our hands to say thanks one more time to the Iowa City Human Commission for this award. The Kenneth Camille Award, Sarah Ziegenhorn. As if she didn't have enough to do as a first-year medical student, Sarah Ziegenhorn spent her weekends seeking out and befriending individuals at risk of contracting hepatitis C and HIV with the goal of reducing rates of contraction by providing sterile supplies, medically informed advice, and a friendly face. This led to founding and directing the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition, which lobbies the Iowa legislature to end laws that harm injection drug users. Ms. Ziegenhorn has built a bipartisan coalition of people who have lost friends and loved ones to injection drug use, with the result that her bill to legalize syringe exchange in the state of Iowa was sponsored by the Iowa legislature. This is a form of public health intervention which exists in in 36 other states and is recognized by the CDC and WHO as the single most effective strategy to reduce the contraction rates of HIV and hepatitis C. Ms. Ziegenhorn has won grant after grant from national organizations to continue her work. She has established a statewide naloxone distribution program which has reversed nearly 300 reported opioid overdoses trained a dozen or more police departments, and has educated hundreds of citizens in the principles of harm reduction. Ms. Ziegenhorn has literally saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives, and was credited by the director of the Iowa Department of Public Health with single-handedly reversing the trend of rising rates of hepatitis C and HIV in the state. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Ziegenhorn, re recipient of the Kenneth Camille Award.
Thank you. I don't have a very loud voice, so I was not going to be able to project more than a few feet. Um, thank you very much to all of you for being here, and thank you very much to the Commission for your award. I'm really grateful and honored to receive this award uh, in recognition of the work that all 150 individuals who volunteer with the Iowa Harm Reduction Coalition are responsible for. Um, I'm also really honored to receive this award um, because it has personal significance to me. Um, Ken Camille is a, was a longtime friend of my family's and a neighbor um, as I was a child growing up in Iowa City. So it's really an honor to receive the award in memory of someone who I knew well. Um, I also want to, I'm also really grateful for this award because um, I think it recognizes something that's so beautiful about the community that we live in, that a group of people, uh, mostly people who are in recovery from IV drug use, a group of people who've lost loved ones to overdose, and medical students and some physicians were able to mobilize together over the last two years to work to create a public health program that's reduced the rates of hepatitis C in the state and saved so many lives from overdose and right and that's what makes living here so amazing is that we don't have to wait for someone to change things for us we're all able to mobilize together collectively to make these types of change possible so thank you very much bill reagan award university of iowa labor center the Bill Reagan Award is given to recognize outstanding contributions by a business or organization to human rights and is named for Mr. Reagan due to his selfless leadership of the Ark of Southeast Iowa. This morning we have a special guest in the audience, Mr. Reagan's daughter, Stephanie. Stephanie, would you please stand for a moment? Thank you. A United Nations report has said, labor rights are human rights, and the ability to exercise these rights in the workplace is prerequisite for workers to enjoy a broad range of other rights, whether economic, social, cultural, political, or otherwise. This statement exemplifies the work done by the University of Iowa Labor Center and its director for the past 10 years, Jennifer Shearer. Ms. Shearer is a tireless advocate for labor rights, which are, of course, human rights. The Labor Center protects women, persons of color, persons with disabilities, immigrants, and others by teaching them about their rights in the workplace. The Labor Center has educated thousands of Iowans on topics ranging from safety to wage theft to labor history. Ms. Shearer has reached out to all corners of the state of Iowa to educate workers about their human rights and to preserve the rich history of workers through oral histories, collections, and classroom courses serving thousands of people from all kinds of backgrounds. On her own time, Ms. Shearer has been a fierce advocate for raising the minimum wage, protecting unions, and many other labor-related issues. Here to accept the Bill Reagan Ward on behalf of the organization she heads, the University of Iowa Labor Center, Ms. Jennifer Shearer. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you, good morning. It's a real honor to accept this award and really to accept it on behalf of the generations of Iowans who established the Labor Center and its mission to educate for change by building the labor movement through education. And I wanna say it's been an incredible privilege to be part of that mission for more than 15 years now and to work with talented colleagues. And some of them are here and I would like my talented colleagues to stand. 
And I would... <laughs> And I also want to acknowledge some other talented colleagues, my family members who are here, who are also partners in this work and have been uh, for the last 15. Please stand up. Including my parents, please stand up. Um, these folks who came before me and the ones who will come after me, um, have been dedicated to the Labor, Labor Center to championing the rights of all workers, making the resources of our public university broadly accessible to the public, and empowering workers to translate knowledge into collective action and collective voice. In other words, to educate people to build democracy in their workplaces and communities. And while I am completely thrilled to celebrate these contributions today, I am also here with an urgent sense of anxiety about the prospect that our collective dedication to these projects of advancing public education and workers' rights as human rights are very much in question, not just here, but around our nation. And I feel this fear not just because of my firsthand knowledge of the important impact that labor center education has had on workers and communities across the state, but because this enterprise represents one strand in what we know is a desperately fragile web of democratic institutions that are very at risk in our world today. The University of Iowa Labor Center was founded in 1951. And this is not coincidentally just three years after the post-World War II adoption of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. We're coming up on the 70th anniversary of that declaration. So it's an important moment to revisit it, including articles uh, that we often talk about in our labor education. Article 23, which uh, affirms the right of all to work, to free choice of employment, just and favorable conditions of work, protection against unemployment, equal pay for equal work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I give you some homework. <laughs> Go look up these articles. And Article 26, which affirms people's rights to education, directed to the full development of their personalities and the strengthening of, of respect for their human rights and fundamental freedoms. Today, we know we're witnessing attacks on all these freedoms and on the democratic institutions of all kinds, including independent trade unions. And history teaches us that whether we identify with those whose rights are most assaulted at any moment, we're all in this together. We can't separate threats to our rights from those of others. So I want to close with the well-known words of Pastor Martin Niemöller. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And he said, then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. For now, for today, I am incredibly grateful and proud to be part of a public university, an Iowa City community, and an international labor movement where we do speak out boldly on behalf of one another. So in higher education, we often call this exercising our rights to academic freedom. In the labor movement, we call this solidarity. And no matter what we call it, we need a lot more of it in the months to come. So I challenge everybody here to speak boldly for yourself, for others, and for a future where human rights are not only declared, but also realized. Thanks. I'll need you to come up and get your award, please. Turner Award, Susan Craig. In over 40 years with the Iowa City Public Library, 24 as director, 
Susan Craig has tirelessly advocated for equitable library access. Ms. Craig's passionate belief in access for all is demonstrated in these and many other accomplishments during her tenure. Expanded library hours, introduced book mobile service in 2017 to ensure that those who cannot come downtown to receive library materials and programming, contracted with Hills, Lone Tree, University Heights, and rural Johnson County to provide the residents with library service, welcomed people without homes and with temporary residences by providing library cards to access computers and other materials within the building, introduced registration for library cards at Iowa City Elementary Schools, partnered with Iowa City Transit to enable children to ride a bus to the library for free of charge during summer break to ensure they have access to library services, created a designated space just for teens on the library's second floor to provide access to the internet, technology, and reading materials, encouraged translation of written information about how to get a library card into five languages, worked with other area libraries to expand digital collection access to everyone in our communities, in her words at the current building's grand opening, this library is a symbol of the values and character of our community. The Isabel Turner Award recognizes Ms. Craig's values and character. Let's give her a round of applause. Thank you to the Human Rights Commission for this award and to the City of Iowa City for valuing human rights and celebrating them in this way. Public libraries have been called the most democratic of institutions and a cornerstone of civil society. I absolutely believe this is true. Libraries are more than books. They are a space that belongs to all. At the Iowa City Public Library, we work to ensure everyone feels welcome in that library space. There is no more diverse place in our community than the library. If you haven't been there in a while, you should stop by. You will see people of all ages, races, genders, and socioeconomic groups gathering together, sharing resources that no one could afford on their own. Information is freely available to all, and the library is a safe haven for those in need. I feel I am only a figurehead accepting this award. The role the Iowa City Public Library plays in supporting human rights for all is made real every day by the staff who absolutely believe in the freedom to read and who offer compassion and understanding to all who visit the library. And to the many library board members I have worked with who value access and literacy and ensure that library policies reflect those values. I have tried to deliver a gentle nudge now and then when it was needed, but mostly I just get out of the way and let them do their job. Thank you. I would like to congratulate all the honorees and our key, keynote speaker. What an inspiring group of people. We hope that their energy and dedication will inspire you to go out and do great things today and in the future. 
I also would like to thank the nominators for their submission, the commission staff for putting this event together, and each of you for attending. Thank you so much for attending and have a wonderful day.